43rd episode of the Chewing Your Boot podcast, and guests don't get much bigger than this as we bring you Greg Chappell today. The Chappell surname has been synonymous with Australian sport for over 50 years, as the three brothers Ian, Trevor, and of course Greg start in the field of cricket. And throw in their multi-talented grandfather Vic Richardson, and you have a very talented family. Widely regarded as the greatest batsman of his era, Greg is a former test captain who scored in excess of 7,000 test runs as well as 2,400s. There's plenty to get through, so we hope you enjoy this one as much as we did. Before we get into another episode of the podcast, we'd like to remind you that this one is proudly sponsored by Kremlin. You can use the code BENM10, all in caps, for 10% off on all your clothing needs, so make sure you get onto that. Greg, welcome to the Chewing Your Boot podcast. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, Riley. Take us back to your childhood. Obviously, two brothers in Ian and Trevor. I imagine you would have had some pretty fierce backyard battles. Yeah, we did. There's an age gap between each of us. Uh, Ian's five years older than I am and Trevor's four and a bit years younger. So, particularly between Trevor and Ian, a big gap. Um, we probably were only children in a lot of ways for a big part of our early years. I know, um, you know, Ian being five years older, I don't reckon he recognised that I was alive until I was about nine years of age because <laughs> he was he was more interested in playing with mates his own age, obviously, and um, so a younger brother was more of a pain in the neck than anything else. But obviously he ran out of mates and uh, he needed someone to, to beat up in the backyard, so I got to play in the... The test matches in the in the backyard. Um, all of our test matches were Ashes test matches. So the bad news for me was that Ian, as the older yeah. brother, was Australia and I had to be England. So that was a bit of a challenge. Um, I didn't want to be beaten by my older brother, but I didn't really have my heart in winning for England. So <laughs> it took a took a bit of getting used to. Um, one thing our father insisted was that whenever we played cricket, we played seriously, uh, that we played with a hard ball. He didn't give us any pads and gloves to play with, so uh, we got to find out a little bit about the hard ball, just what it felt like, and that it was probably a lot better to hit it with the bat than let it hit you. So, uh, Ian, good news and bad news. He didn't take into consideration that I was five years younger. I was just the opposition, and I was England, so I had to be beaten. So he probably spent about four or five years just trying to kill me in the in the backyard. So. I learned quite a lot. I, I, you know, I didn't realise until much later just how much I'd learned in those backyard test matches. Um, not least of all, uh, you know, how to compete, you know, how to try and hang in there because I got beaten a lot. And uh, so I had to learn, learn to lose, learn to cop it and, uh, and, and keep trying. You know, we played pretty serious cricket. We were miles ahead of the game in the sense that even in those days, we had our own match referee because what I worked out was that if I made enough noise, if things weren't going my way, if I made enough noise, mum would come out to see what was happening. And invariably, it'd be to Ian, what's going on? And he'd say, well, the little so-and-so won't go out. Um, she'd say to me, why won't you go out? I would say I didn't hit it, so why would I go out? And she'd generally say, look, Ian, he's younger and he's smaller, give him another hit. So... I'd win the battle, but then lose the war because then he'd just push off the side fence a bit harder and try and kill me and pin me to the other side fence. So it was pretty willing, willing stuff, but we played it seriously. And 
you know, in our minds, I know in my mind, they were real test matches and we were making decisions in real time. So what I learned later on was that you had, you had to be a good decision maker if you wanted to be a good player. And the best players were the better decision makers. So those formative years in the backyard were pretty important. You know, and the other, the other part of it was that if you got out, no one, I didn't enjoy getting out, but because we were playing a test series, you know, you'd, and we were batting for each player. So if one guy got out, you'd have to go into the laundry and fill in the scorebook and come back as the next bloke. So if you'd made a mistake, maybe playing a cut shot and you'd got out with the first guy, it didn't stop you playing the cut shot. You just learned to play it better. Um, yeah. So anyway, Ian moved on and I became Australia and Trevor became England and I beat up on him and I learned to win. So it was, uh, it was a pretty good um, you know, a few years in the backyard and a lot of really, really good lessons. And growing up in South Australia, obviously, it's a state that's known for their love of sport, especially footy. Did you love footy as well as cricket? And I also understand you played a bit of baseball growing up. Is that correct? Yes, Ben, we did. Um, we were encouraged to play sport. Our father was a keen sportsman. He played baseball for South Australia. He was in the state cricket squad for a number of years. When I look back on it, you know, he was probably uh, a bit frustrated that he didn't achieve what he would like to have done in his sporting career. So he put a lot of energy into us. He played some footy. He took us to the, the footy. Um, I love my AFL. Um, we grew up um, supporting West Adelaide in, in Adelaide, red and black. So I followed all the red and black teams around, uh, around the country. So uh, I'm a Bombers fan for better or worse. Um, <laughs> worse most of the time it seems but uh, no I, I love the footy and I, I watch uh, whenever I, I get the chance I played footy at school but you're right baseball was was another you know big sport for us um, they uh, you know we played growing up it was a winter sport in those days so you know we'd play six months of cricket and six months of baseball you know by the end of the cricket season I couldn't wait to pick up a baseball bat and by the end of the baseball season I was champing at the bit to pick up a a cricket bat, but I did. I did love my footy. Uh, played footy at school until open age, uh, because I was at a, a private school. So I um, sort of felt obliged to play some sport for the football. But by that stage, I was playing senior baseball, and I wanted to keep playing baseball. So I, I played basketball for the school, um, so I could play on Saturday mornings, and then play baseball in the in the afternoons. Ian represented South Australia and Australia at baseball. And I was in the state squad for a couple of years as a 17-year-old and an 18-year-old before I went off to England for a couple of years to play county cricket. And by the time I came back, they were playing summer baseball. So that was the end of the baseball career. But, you know, we enjoyed both games equally, although I think cricket was always going to be the, the game that if we could play, uh, seriously, we were going to play. And your grandfather, Vic Richardson, obviously captain Australia, along with Stone in many other sports throughout his time. Can you take us through your relationship with him and I imagine he's someone you looked up to? Yeah. Um, it's funny, you know, we didn't... Uh, I, I, you know, I was aware of the fact that he'd played, but it wasn't something that he talked about a lot. Um, you know, mum was his daughter... 
daughter, obviously, and she'd grown up uh, with him playing cricket in the, the summer and football in the winter and, and anything else he could play, by the way, uh, you know, in that era. It was easy to play, or easier to play multiple sports. Uh, and he represented South Australia at about five sports, I think. Um, but whilst, you know, we were aware of his sporting background, it wasn't a big deal, you know, it wasn't something we talked about a lot. And I think, you know, because he knew our father was heavily involved in our sporting careers, he didn't get heavily involved. I can remember as a four-year-old staying at his place when mum was in hospital having Trevor. And I don't know whether I dragged him out or whether he dragged me out into his backyard. He had a practice wicket in his uh, backyard and um, I got him to throw me some balls or he, he encouraged me to come out and he threw some balls. That's the only time I can ever remember him actively involved in our, in our sport of any kind. Other than showing interest, obviously, when we were playing cricket at school, uh, often I'd look up and see his car parked down the road. He would never come and, you know, come into the, into the ground. And, and, you know, looking back on it, I imagine it was because if he'd turned up and, you know, joined the, the crowd, it would have been all about him because he was very well known and uh, obviously very popular in the, in the state because of his sporting history. So, uh, you know, he won a McGarry medal, which is the Brownlow equivalent in, in South Australia, playing for the Sturt Football Club. Um, captain South Australia at cricket and, and football and has the Victor Richardson Gates named after him at Adelaide Oval. So um, he was, we were obviously very proud of him. Um, as I said before, he, he wouldn't talk much about it. We, um, I was 21 when he passed away. So it was only really the last few years that I was old enough to really get involved in conversations about sport. Ian, being a bit older, probably had more time with Vic than, uh, than I did. And so I, I've got a lot of the stories, probably Vic stories from Ian more than I got them from, from Vic. But I do remember a couple of family occasions where we, you know, nailed him in the corner and got him to, to talk a bit about, you know, his career, particularly his cricket career, about some of the great games, some of the, uh, the great players of, of his time. Obviously, he played with people like Bradman and O'Reilly and played through the body line series. So there was quite a bit of um, history involved there that was well known to us. So we could, uh, we could ask some you know, pretty uh, searching questions. One thing that I'll always remember was that, um, uh, and I won't mention any names, but you know, we asked him about a certain player and he said, I've been, I learned very early on, if you've got nothing good to say about someone, don't say anything at all. So we didn't get much out of him. Um, and you mentioned the infamous Bodyline series. Can you give us an insight into Vic's perspective on that? Yeah, Vic, Vic was one, he was a proponent for fighting fire with fire. He, he thought that if they were going to bowl short, then you know, Australia should have, um, should have you know, fought back and, and bowled some bounces of their own. But Woodfield wasn't... Uh, wasn't interested in, in doing that. Um, Vic made 100 in that series. So, you know, he was renowned as a, as a fighter. He probably wasn't the most aesthetically pleasing batsman. Um, low grip, bottom hand sort of uh, grip. So he was a square of the wicket player. Um, brilliant fielder by all, by all accounts. And, um, you know, very, very competitive. And, you know, South Australia hasn't got a particularly great history in uh, you know record in 
Sheffield Shield cricket, but they, you know, Vic managed to get them to the Sheffield Shield, uh, win the Sheffield Shield on a couple of occasions, you know, with sides that probably weren't as star-studded as a few other teams around. And that was basically because he, he got them to compete and uh, go out there, have some fun and play hard. And you made your first class debut in 1966 when you seized the opportunity of Ian being selected for Australia. You had a throat infection but still managed two half centuries. Can you tell us a bit about that game? Oh, mate, it was only against Victoria, so it probably doesn't count, really. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, we, uh, yeah, obviously I was delighted. Um, I'd only finished school the year before. Um, our school team, there were actually three three schools in Adelaide where the first 11 played in the men's B-grade competitions. So our school, Prince Alfred College, St. Peter's College and Adelaide Boys High School all played men's B-grade cricket. So that was a that was a blessing for me and that, you know, I'd from 14 years of age, basically I'd played against men. So I went straight from school into the Glenelg A-grade team, uh, played probably four or five games at the end of that 65, 66 season. Um, I made 150 in the in a semi-final at Adelaide Oval, I remember, but I don't recall making too many big scores other than that. And then the next season, as you said, Ian was away with the Australian team in South Africa. So there was one batting spot sort of up for grabs for South Australia at the start of that season. I don't recall sort of thinking, you know, that I've, you know, I've got to get this and or, you know, that I particularly had that in mind when I started the season. But um, I got 200s and an 80 in the first three games of that season. And the 80 was against East Torrens, which was captained by Les Favell, who was the South Australian captain and a selector at the time. So obviously the timing was good. And, and I went into that first game with a, with a bit of form under the belt. It was at Adelaide Oval, which um, you know, I knew well because I'd been going there since I was a kid to watch cricket. Um, been in, I'd been in the state squad only for, you know, for a few months, really. Um, it was a bit scary. I, I can remember being quite nervous um, leading into that, that first game. And at, rightly, as you said, I uh, woke up with a sore throat on the morning of the game. And I, I really had a conundrum. I, you know, I didn't know what to do. You know, should I own up um, or should I just pretend and hope that uh, you know, I got through okay? The worst part of it was I had a, uh, I had a stiff neck with the, with the sore throat. And that was what worried me. The sore throat wasn't an issue. I was more worried about the sore neck and whether I was going to be able to face up and field in the slips field anywhere for that matter. And as I drove up to the Adelaide Oval, I was tossing up, you know, do I say something or not? And I decided I should say something. And I went to Les Fable, who, you know, was probably, you know, I was 18 years of age. He would have been 36 at least. So he was twice my age. Um, pretty tough sort of character and I didn't quite, I didn't know him that well and I didn't quite know how to, how to handle it. Uh, but I decided I, I should tell him and I went up to him and I said, Les, um, I woke up this morning with a sore throat. I've got a bit of a stiff neck. Um, I'm not sure whether I, I should play. And he said, well, you're the only one who knows whether you can play or not. Um, I don't want to hear any more unless you tell me you can't play. So I went down to the nets and I had a hit in the nets and I had a bowl and sort of, you know, seemed to be okay. And I knew that 
I would probably be better off if I didn't bat that day, but I was prepared to take a take a punt and see how we went. So I never said another word, and we walked out on the field. Les won. Uh, sorry, I don't know whether he won or lost the toss, but we fielded, which was probably a blessing. Um, that first day, and on the second morning, I woke up feeling a lot better, and the neck was a little bit better. And uh, as you said, I got away to a reasonable start with fifty odd in the the first innings, um, and fifty in the in the second innings against uh, Victoria. So that was a gave me a bit of confidence, and probably gave me a bit of breathing space for um, you know to to at least keep my side for uh, place in the side for the for the first few games at least. And then um, in those days, South Australia used to go on an Eastern States tour. So we'd go and play Victoria and New South Wales and Queensland all in one sweep. Um, I remember getting uh, getting a few in Sydney and then I got a hundred in uh, in Brisbane against Queensland. And that sort of, you know, set me on, on my way. I was pretty uh, secure in my place in the side and um, continued to, to play first-class cricket for South Australia for the next seven years and then Queensland for seven or eight years after that. And you also played two seasons with Somerset in county cricket. How do you compare your experiences in Australian first-class cricket and English? Um, Much tougher in England, tougher from a batting point of view particularly. I enjoyed the bowling. Uh, I went over there as a leg spinner and came back as a medium pacer because... The wickets were so slow, and I wasn't that good a leg spinner anyway, but um, yeah, it didn't suit me. The conditions didn't suit me very much there um, for, for leg spin bowling, so I started bowling some media paces, which I'd done at school anyway. I mean, at primary school, a mate and I used to open the bowling, and then he'd bowl off spinners, and I'd bowl leg spinners. So, you know, I'd been bowling medium paces most of my life, and in the backyard, it was always, you know, if you open the bowling, you had to bowl. Well, I thought it was quick, but it was probably military medium. Um, but the batting was the real uh, bonus, you know, going to England and playing two years of county cricket in very different conditions from Australia. You know, in Australia, the wickets are hard, they bounce, you know, the sun shines, you've got bright seeing conditions all the time. And all of a sudden, I was in England in the middle of April, it was cold, it was wet, and it was dark. I remember my first game for Somerset was against Yorkshire and the great Fred Truman was still playing for Yorkshire at that stage, uh, albeit you know, right at the end of his career. And his pace was down a bit, but just to get, you know, I'd, I'd been Fred Truman as a kid playing in the backyard um, in those test matches with Ian. Um, so, you know, it, it was a great thrill for me. And to think that they would fly me halfway around the world and pay me money to play cricket was just amazing as a 19-year-old. I, I still don't know why they did it, um, why they thought that a 19-year-old was a good uh, investment. Because the, the rules up until that stage were as an overseas player, if you wanted to play county cricket, you had to go and live in England for seven years. Um, and I was never doing that. I think they'd reduced it to maybe two years. And I wasn't even doing that because I didn't want to miss an Australian summer. Um, and that particularly year 1968 they changed the rules that each uh, county could have one overseas player on immediate registration so you could walk in and play they had signed John Inverarity for that uh, that summer all-rounder from Western Australia Um, but then he got selected to play to go on the 68 tour of England for Australia and 
I realised that Somerset didn't have a player and didn't have long to get one. So I said to my father, you know, I might um, write to them and offer my services, which um, was pretty naive, really. I mean, I didn't know what I didn't know. So I sent a telegram, which we used to do in those days. You may have heard of telegrams. Um, I sent a telegram saying I'm interested in the job, you know, uh, letter following more details. I sent the um, telegram on the Friday. By Sunday night, my father said, have you written the letter to Somerset? And I said, oh, no, I haven't. Quite honestly, I, I don't think I've got much chance of getting the job. And he said, well, you've sent the telegram. You told them you'd send a letter, you better send it. So I sat down and wrote a letter and sent it off on the Monday. Um, forgot all about it. Uh, went about the, my work. I was working at the Shell Oil Company at that stage in Adelaide. Um, the following Wednesday night, um, the phone rang at home and mum answered the phone and said, Greg, there's a fellow from Somerset wants to talk to you. So it was a fellow called Richard Robinson, who was the secretary of the club. And he said, we got your letter. We're very interested. When can you come? And I felt like saying, well, what about tomorrow? Um, but I had, <laughs> I had to you know, resign and uh, sort out a few other things before I before I left, but to go and play, you know, six days a week, two, three day games a week, um, because there was an uneven, there were 17 teams, you'd get a game off every so often. I think the most days in a row I played were 19. Um, and, uh, you know, then you'd get a three day, three days off. But I mean, I just loved it. I wanted to play uh, because of the different conditions. The Duke's ball was a much harder ball. Well, it stayed much harder in England because of the softer conditions, I think. And because the outfield was generally green and the wickets were you know, a bit damp early in the season, particularly, the seam was quite pronounced. So the ball would move off the wicket quite a bit. So it was a real change of conditions for me. And it was a bit like a finishing school. You know, it was like the opportunity to go and you know, I'd sort of learnt the basic art of batting in the more batting friendly conditions in Australia and all of a sudden I was under the pump against bowlers who were really good at using those conditions and because Somerset weren't a very good team at that stage you know I got to bat twice in every game pretty much so I got a lot of batting practice um, I didn't I didn't feel as though I had a particularly great season I think I averaged about 30 for the the season but the sort of benchmark for a good season in county cricket in those days was a thousand runs and I got over a thousand runs in both seasons that I played. And even though there was an opportunity for a third season, I didn't go back. I felt like I'd, I'd learnt what I needed to learn. I didn't really enjoy the atmosphere of professional cricket. What I found was a lot of these guys were, they were just happy to be playing. They weren't trying to get better. They weren't worried about winning. Um, you know, I'd grown up, every game was there to be won. You, you, you set out to, to win games from the start. You know, in Australia, around first-class cricket, we talked about how do we make runs faster and how can we get wickets quicker? And in England, I found they were talking about how can we not get out and how can we stop the opposition scoring? It was a totally different mindset. And I found after two years, or certainly by halfway through the second season, I really felt that I was in danger of 
adopting that mindset if I didn't get out of there. And so I spoke to my father, said, look, I'm coming home in a couple of months time. Can you have a look around for a real job? Because I don't want to do this anymore. I, I want to play for Australia. And I reckon I've learned what I can learn here. I need to focus on making runs and taking wickets or whatever else in Australia. If I can play at that level, I want to do it. But if I, if I can't do that, I don't want to do this for a living. And you alluded to it just before. You initially bowled leg spin. However, you then changed the seam up where you were especially successful for Somerset. Did you consider yourself an all-rounder or a batsman who could bowl a bit, for want of a better phrase? Look, I think I, was, I could probably be considered an all-rounder in England because, you know, those conditions, my sort of bowling uh, worked reasonably well, you know, and you know, I could expect to take wickets in those conditions. In Australia... At first class level, yes, I think I was, but international level, never uh, really. I mean, I did some bowling, um, had a few arguments with my brother, which wasn't unusual, but, um, you know, he was captain and he used to bowl me in three or four over spells. And I said, mate, I can't get wickets in three or four over spells, you know. And he said, well, you better find a way because that's all you're getting. He said, you're on the team to make runs and every over you bowl is going to take away from from the runs that you give us. So, uh, you know, you better get over it. Um, yeah, I love it. Actually, that's why, you know, one-day cricket was a blessing, you know, when one-day cricket came in because I could be an all-rounder in one-day cricket because, um, you know, different sort of um, state of mind, batsmen probably trying to play more shots. And I was more of a containing bowler than I was, you know, I wasn't going to scare anyone out, that's for sure. Um, the only way they'd be scared is that, you know, they'd be scared to be a victim of, of mine because I wasn't that good a bowler. But, yeah, I love my bowling. I, I um, it was often said by my brother and a few others that you know I I had the temperament of a fast bowler. It was just a pity I was a medium pacer. But um, yeah, I, I loved my bowling, and one day cricket was good for that point of view because I got to bowl in each game. Uh, it really felt like you were in, involved in the game from start to you know start to finish. Um, and I think that's yeah, that's what we learned as, as kids. You know, you wanted to be in every part of the every part of the game and try and have an impact. County cricket was good from that point of view. Um, I was an accidental bowler. The first season in Somerset, they had a single wicket competition amongst all the, the counties. So each county ran their own single wicket competition. Um, you know, where one versus one and you had, you know, fielders fielding for, for both players. And whoever made the most runs in six overs, I think it might have been. And then the winner, the winner of each county uh, single wicket went up to the Oval to play in the, the final in London. So I represented, I won the Somerset um, single wicket and, and represented them at the, at the Oval. Um, I can't remember who beat me in the semi-final, but um, you know, I got to the, the semi-final of it and uh, fell by the wayside. But I knew leg spinners weren't going to work in, in that uh, competition so that's when I sort of started they'd never seen me bowl medium paces before so in the one day competition in the single wicket competition I bowled my medium paces and the coach said mate how long have you been bowling those and I said all my life you know that's what you know that's what I used to do open the bowling and then come on and bowl leg spinners later on so uh, he said well we can use you as a seam bowler and so I started getting more and more bowling and I think that was the other thing in that second season We'd lost a couple of key bowlers from the previous season. They'd retired and 
all of a sudden I became, you know, one of the main bowlers and I was, you know, probably bowling 30 overs a game and I didn't have the constitution to, uh, to bowl 30 overs a game, you know, twice a week. So uh, by the end of it, I was pretty tired. Um, you made your Test and Ashes debut in 1970 in which you scored a century on debut. It must have been a special few days and can you describe your emotions and feelings in this time? Yeah, well, I grew up dreaming about playing Test cricket, um, but so did all my mates. You know, all the guys that I knocked around with were all sportsmen and uh, keen cricketers and footballers and yeah, I think we all dreamed of, of playing Test cricket. I, I, I'm not sure I ever really believed that it would happen. That's where the advantage of having an older brother who was on the same path was was pretty important because I was 13 when Ian got picked to play Sheffield Shield cricket for South Australia. So that was a bit of a, oh, you know, maybe if he can do that, maybe that's something I can do. And then I was 16 when he got picked to play Test cricket. And I think that was when it really dawned on me that this might be a possibility. So then I started really thinking about, you know, now how do I improve myself, which included going, playing county cricket. Um, so when I, my first test obviously was against England and I'd played against all of those England players and batted against all of their bowlers quite often in, in county cricket over those two seasons. So that was an advantage. Um, I, my first test was in Perth, which was the first ever test match in Perth. Probably one of the best batting wickets in, in the world, one of the best cricket wickets in the world at that, that stage. Um, I'd been picked in the 12 for the first test in Brisbane, but I was 12th man in that test match, which was probably another blessing uh, because Perth was definitely... Um, plus it, being 12th man for a test match, all of a sudden I got the nerves out of the way and sort of the strangeness of the, the new environment out of the way and didn't, didn't have to bat in that, in that test match. So um, the, the Gabba was a good wicket as well. But Perth was probably as good a place as you could expect to start batting in, in test cricket. Albeit, uh, Riley, you might be pleased to know that I was picked as an all-rounder in that first test match because I batted at number seven. Um, so that said a little bit about where Australian cricket was at at that time. The batting was um, was a little bit suspect. Terry Jenner had beaten me to the last spot in the, the first test in Brisbane. He was a leg spinner, but in Perth wasn't needed. And so they they picked me as the uh, sort of third seamer in the, in the team and an extra batsman to bolster the batting, which obviously needed it because... Um, we were 105 for five, I reckon, when I went into bat, or 107 for five when I went into bat. And luckily, Paul Sheehan, who um, had been the batsman before me, ran himself out pretty quickly. So I didn't have to sit there very long with the pads on. But I do remember walking out to bat in a bit of a fog. You know, you, here it is. I've dreamt of this all my life, or as you know, long as I could remember. And all of a sudden, here it was, and it was against England, and you know, all of our test matches in the backyard had been Ashes test matches. You know, I'd listened to any number of um, Ashes test matches in Australia and overseas because television wasn't around in those days. So, you know, listened to it on radio, and all of a sudden, here I was in the middle of it, and we were in, in strife. I was very lucky that uh, Ian Redpath was the... Um, 
the batsman at the other end, a very experienced player and a terrific cricketer and a lovely bloke. I didn't get off the mark for 48 minutes, I think it was. Um, it didn't seem that long to me, but my family and friends who were watching that test match, it was one of the first to be televised live, I think. Um, it, um, they tell me it was a long time. The uh, reason I didn't get off the mark any earlier than that, I think, was because Redders took most of the strike, whether knowingly or, or uh, by accident. And he certainly took most of the strike against John Snow, which was probably uh, my good luck because Snowy was a very, very good player, a good bowler. And, um, you know, I didn't need to cop that first up. Anyway, uh, I think the first 50 took me, um, you know, it took a long time anyway, but after the tea break, things seemed to open up a bit and, um, you know, the, the runs started to flow much quicker and the, the second 50 came at a runner ball and uh, I brought up my, my 100. Uh, Redders, I reckon, got about 180. We put on 200-odd and got us back in into the test match. Didn't help us win it. The, uh, the match was drawn, but um, you know, it was still uh, a you know, pretty uh, relieving. It was more of a relief than anything else, I think, getting 100 in the first test match. Um, I've said to many young players since then, the first test match will be the easiest one you'll ever play. And after that, it gets a lot harder. And I, I certainly found that uh, got a bit harder because they took a bit more notice of me after that. Um, I think in Perth, they were more interested in getting Redders out than they were in, in getting me out. So, uh, it, uh, you know, I, some good fortune, I think, to be at the other end of Redders and also, you know, just to be in Perth playing the first test match on what was a wonderful uh, wonderful batting wicket. The rest of the series wasn't quite so successful. Um, I finished up with a 60-odd in the last test in uh, in Sydney, which turned out to be Ian's first test as, uh, as captain. And you made your ODI debut a year later. You're probably better known for your test career, but how do you reflect on your ODI career? Um, as I said earlier, I enjoyed one day cricket. It was um, it gave me a chance to um, get my uh, you know get some get some bowling. Um, one day cricket when it first, I mean the first one day international was an accident. Um, it was um, just I, I just noticed that I've gone pretty dark there. Can you just turn the, uh, the light on, just please? I heard it's, uh, yes, please. Um, Hopefully that's a bit better. I all of a sudden looked up and realised that I'd disappeared into the into the background, which may have been a good thing, by the way. But uh, the first one day international was an accident. Uh, we had a test match washed out at the MCG without a ball being bowled. So the cricket board, in its wisdom, decided to put on a one day game to at least give the uh, the Melbourne. Uh, uh, punders a, a chance to, to see some cricket. So uh, from memory, it was a 60 over game. Um, took a long time. It was a big, it was a long day. I know, I remember that much. So for a little while, you know, one day cricket was a bit of an add-on. You know, I, I'd played, um, I'd played some one day cricket in England for Somerset, but uh, again, you know, my um, skill set probably suited one day cricket, being being able to do both things. And, you know, I enjoyed it. I mean, I uh, played uh, 
played in the first ever World Cup in 75, where we got beaten in the final by the West Indies. Um, that was the longest day's cricket I think I ever played. Uh, again, it was a 60-over game. I reckon we arrived at Lord's Cricket Ground for the final about 8 o'clock in the morning. And the game finished about 8 o'clock at night. Um, you know, it didn't start at 8 o'clock in the morning, obviously. But, you know, we got there and warmed up and did all that sort of stuff. 60 overs is a lot of cricket. You know, 120 overs in a, in a, in a day is a lot of cricket. And um, we had a couple of um, interruptions. Because the, the West Indies were in the final, there were a lot of West Indian supporters at the ground. You know, big West Indian uh, population in London and in England. And they came, I'm sure they came from all over to, to be there. Lords is a smallish ground at the best of times, but, you know, they'd sort of brought the boundaries in to fit a few more people in. And uh, the, the barriers were only, a, you know, maybe a foot high at, at best. And, you know, the crowd got a bit excited and got a bit involved in the game and, you know, came over, tumbled over the fence a few times. And so the, the game sort of got elongated. So that was a, was a great uh, a great thrill. But yeah, after World Series cricket, when uh, you know one day cricket became a big part of um, the summer, you know the, that uh, some of those series, you know three uh, you know three teams in uh, in the the World Series one day competition, they that was really solid cricket. Um, and being captain at the time, you know, we were playing most of the, well, we were playing all the double headers. Saturdays and Sundays on a weekend were always Australia v, you know, the two touring teams. Two one day as back to back as a player was hard enough, but um, throw in the captaincy and um, you know that it was pretty demanding um, stuff. But uh, I got to say, I loved it and really enjoyed the the difference between one day cricket and Test cricket. You could what we learned from one day cricket was that. You could hit the ball in the air a bit more often, um, take a few more risks without necessarily increasing the risk of, of, of getting out. So I enjoyed the challenge of um, you know, that, that sort of batting and I enjoyed bowling 10 overs. I, I generally bowled towards the, the latter part of the inning, so bowled at the death when uh, there was always a little bit of pressure on. But yeah, that's why what I enjoyed about the game, you know, the, the, the contest and being involved in the contest and pitting yourself against the best that the opposition could um, could throw at you. Um, so one day cricket was was a great opportunity for me to express on, you know, uh, sort of in all skill sets, batting, bowling and fielding. At Lords in 1972, you scored 131 in the first innings and combined with Ian, your brother, to steady the ship. And it was regarded as one of your best innings and earned high praise from Richie Bonneau. Was it pleasing to do this so early in your career? Yeah, again, it was, um, you know, being Lords, um, you know, I dreamt about playing a test match, you know, at Lords for as long as I could remember. Luckily, I'd played at Lords a few times when I was with Somerset, so it wasn't the first time I'd been there. We'd lost the first Test match in Manchester um, in pretty challenging conditions, very um, overcast, wet, and uh, cold up in Manchester. Very English conditions suited England better than than us. We didn't play very well at uh, in that Test match. And I was pretty disappointed. I'd got 20-odd, I think, in each innings at the first test in, in Manchester. 
Um, but I'd got out both times, you know, having been set, you know, one of the, the worst things you can do as a batsman, you know, the hardest part of batting is to get started. Once you get started, you, you should go on and get a big score. And I'd failed to do that in both innings. We lost the game by 80-odd runs. Um, we'd been well and truly outplayed. I don't think we picked the right side. We had the wrong balance for that, particularly our bowling attack. We had a pretty young bowling attack, Dennis Lee, early in his career. A fellow called David Colley um, opened the, uh, the bowling in that test match. I think they'd got a bit excited about the conditions, which were pretty bowler-friendly, and they'd rushed in and tried to take wickets with every ball. And, um, you know, just the odd bad over here and there was enough uh, to uh, to lose the game. But we had the feeling that we hadn't played that well and we'd got within 80 of them in conditions that were, you know, very much in their favour. So the feeling going into Lords was that, you know, we had to be a bit smarter. We talked about, um, you know, doing the basics really well, making sure we got partnerships, um, and that we bowled a bit smarter. Bob Massey made his debut in that test match. Took eight wickets in each innings. It was then. I'm not sure about whether it still is, but it was one of the best uh, debut efforts, certainly by an Australian bowler in, in test cricket. Um, again, conditions pretty much in favour of bowling throughout that, that game. But I'd sort of reflected on the first test match and realised that, yeah, I'd let myself down. I'd let the team down by getting a start and not going on with it. So I wasn't going to make that mistake at Lords. Um, we were five for two when I went into bat. Uh, I think Keith Stackpole and Bruce Francis were out. Ian uh, was batting at number three. I was batting at number four. Ian was a fairly aggressive batsman. He got most of his runs from, you know, cross-bat shots, cut shots, pull shots, hook shots. England knew he liked to play a few hook shots, so they, they bounced him. And he took them on and, and had a pretty good um, session. My job, I, I felt, was just to support him, make sure I didn't take away his momentum by getting stuck on strike. Um, and so I really just uh, did my bid holding my end up while Ian was uh, scoring some runs in the early part of the of our partnership. Ian got out just on the lunch break court on the boundary playing a hook shot, funnily enough. Um, so then, then it you know, became my responsibility because by that stage, you know, I had got a start and I wasn't going to let that um, opportunity get away. And so I really worked hard. Um, conditions were challenging. One of the you know, the important things as a batsman, uh, the first thing you've got to do is read the conditions. And I realised that it wasn't a pitch on which I could expect to play a lot of shots, particularly extravagant drives that you might play at the Adelaide Oval, just weren't going to be on at, uh, at Lord's. So uh, I reined it in and uh, I was looking for half volleys and half trackers basically to score off. And the rest of it, I did the best I could and uh, managed to that through that day into the into the next day and um, you know I, I look back on it probably as my most complete innings in in test cricket just from a physical and mental point of view I I didn't play the only bad shot or rash no not even a rash shot the only mistake I made was um to the ball that I I got out I got a short wide ball from Basil Dolivier and chopped it back onto my stumps but um up until that point you know I'd made 
good decisions, responded appropriately to each ball that was bowled, gave due respect to good bowling. And, um, you know, the 131 was pretty important in a low-scoring game. I think they got 270. Um, my job when I went in, I thought, if we can get close, you know, as long as we can get 250, we're still in the game. But if we get bowled out for 180, it was going to be pretty tough because it wasn't going to be a big scoring game. Uh, luckily, Bob Massey bowled beautifully. Dennis Lilly bowled beautifully as well. Dennis got two wickets in each innings and Bob got the rest. But, you know, Dennis could easily have got a handful more in, in each innings. They, they bowled beautifully. We bowled England out for 116, I reckon, in the second innings. About 180 to get. Um, and uh, Sorry, uh, yeah, we had about 80-odd to, to get, which um, was... We managed with, uh, I think we lost two wickets getting them, but we wouldn't have wanted to be chasing 180. It, it would have been uh, probably a, a few too many. So that got us back into the series. Um, we lost, the third test was drawn, lost the fourth test, and we won the last test to be able to, to tie the series, which was a pretty good result for a young team, uh, a new captain in England in very English conditions. I still look back on it as one of my most, uh, you know, most enjoyable um, tours because being my first tour as an Australian player to England was a highlight. But it was just everything I expected it to be. It was tough cricket. It was good fun. And we had a good bunch of blokes. So it was, uh, it was a great tour. And a few years later, you were appointed as Australia's test captain yourself. And you made a century in each innings as your debut as captain, which was unique for many years. I imagine it was quite an honour to perform so well and to be appointed captain. Yeah, you know, Ian had been captain, obviously, and so I'd stood alongside him at Slip uh, for a lot of that time uh, and been able to view the job pretty closely. And, you know, I'd, I'd played by then, you know, I'd played uh, seven or eight seasons of first-class cricket and, you know, I, I was ready for a, a bit more of a challenge uh, you know so one of the reasons that I moved to Queensland in 73 was really to get an opportunity to captain a first class team because Ian was captain of South Australia and captain of Australia and would be captain of South Australia or captain of Australia while he was captain of South Australia so the opportunities of getting an, that experience wasn't there so when the Queensland Cricket Association approached me to see if I was interested in, in moving to Queensland I did so on the basis that it was uh, going to give me that experience so that if ever the opportunity came along, at least I'd had a bit of, uh, bit of experience of captaincy because I'd never captained my school team. They were, I was always the youngest player in pretty much every school team that I played. So there was always someone else uh, older and um, captain of the team. So that getting that, the job, I, I, knew it was, I knew what I was in for. I knew it wasn't going to be easy. I, I had in my mind that, you know, you, one of the prerequisites of the job was that you had to be an amateur psychologist. I soon learned that amateur wasn't good enough. You had to be fully fledged psychologist to deal with all the different personalities and, and egos and, and whatever. Luckily, you know, we had a good team. They were a good bunch of blokes and I'd you know, played with them for, for a number of years. So it really wasn't that big a deal. Um, being that I was living in Brisbane, so to get to Captain Australia for the first time at the Gabba, uh, the, the biggest 
downside of it was that Clem Jones, who was the Lord Mayor of Brisbane, also um, appointed himself as the head groundsman at the, at the Gabba, and uh, I had more qualifications as a groundsman than he did. Um, so sadly, that, um, that test wicket wasn't a particularly uh, good wicket. I'd won the toss and elected to bowl first because the wicket was still damp. Clem was the only bloke that couldn't grow grass in Queensland. Um, the, the, the pitch was bare apart from grass cuttings. And after the first hour, the wind had blown the grass cuttings away. So this was just rolled mud wicket. We bowled the West Indies out for just under 200 or around 200. Um, and we were batting late in the afternoon and I was in. We'd lost a couple of early wickets and... Uh, there were pieces, you know, sort of dinner plate size pieces coming out of, off the, the top of the wicket because Clem, he rolled the wickets obviously when they were too wet and he only got a very thin layer of sort of hard soil at the top and the rest of it was just rolled mud underneath or just mud underneath and um, the top layer about this thick just started to peel off later in the, in the day and I was not out overnight. And I had a very restless night because I thought, well, if we're going to bat last on this, it's going to be a nightmare. Anyway, I turned up at the, the ground the next day and um, as I did, sort of walked out just to have a look at the pitch. And I got the shock of my life. I walked out there and there was a brand new pitch. Absolutely pristine, not a mark on it. And the laws of cricket say that you can't, other than rolling the pitch and remarking the, the crease, you can't add water, you can't do anything else to it. Clem had remade the pitch. So I thought this is going to be an international incident. Clive Lloyd was captain of the West Indies. Uh, so I walked off the ground and I went and knocked on the door of the West Indian dressing room and asked if Clive was there. He came out and I said, mate, have you had a look at the wicket? And he said, no, should I? And I said, yeah, I think it's worth a walk. So we walked out, we got to the pitch and I sort of stopped at the pavilion end. Clive walked up the other end and walked back. And I'm waiting for the blow up. You know, I was expecting a huge explosion. Clive sort of walked back to me nonchalantly and I said, what do you think? And he said, no, he said it wouldn't have been much of a game without it, without it. And he just walked off. So I thought, well, if he's not going to complain, I'm not complaining. Mind you, it didn't, didn't help much. I mean, by lunchtime or soon after lunch that day, it was back to where it was the, the day before. But um, yeah, again, to start that way as captain was probably, uh, you know, you couldn't ask for a better better start um, hundred in each innings and, and we needed it we we were chasing uh, around 200 just over 200 I think in the second innings um, and it, by that stage the wicket had got pretty low and slow um, it had just sort of disintegrated into powder so it was hard to score quickly um, but you know I was determined to make sure we won my first test matches as, as captain so one thing I'd learned from Ian is that the wins and losses go down against your name when you're captain. So you, it makes you even more aware, even though I was pretty aware before that of, you know, finishing games off. When you're captain, you know you've got to finish them off. And I took it on as my responsibility to make sure I got us home in the, the second inning. So uh, it was a pretty uh, pleasing way to start my tenure as captain. And as part of the emergence of World Series cricket, you're offered the most lucrative deal and many would have considered you, the best, you to be the best player in the world at this time. Was this a tough decision to become part of the World Series cricket or was it something you jumped at? 
it, it was tough, but I, I didn't feel as though that we had any alternative, to be honest. You know, we'd spent a number of years, Ian as captain and myself as captain, sort of meeting with the board and remonstrating with the board about better conditions, not only better pay, but just better conditions, better uh, touring conditions, uh, having, a, having a say in uh, programming. You know, some of the tours of England, you know, we'd go there and they'd have you going crisscrossing the country backwards and forwards. You know, there had to be you know, a better way to organise a tour of England so that you could at least go in the one direction. Um, so there was a whole range of stuff that we were not pleased about. And, and to be honest, um, for, for those of us who'd played a bit of test cricket by that stage, and I'd been playing for seven years, it was a no-brainer because you know, I was going to have to give the game away if I didn't, um, if we didn't get some better conditions because you know we weren't getting paid a lot, a um, couple of hundred dollars a, a, a test match. Uh, I had a young family by that stage. Um, most of the senior players, you know, had had young families. You know, getting a job or keeping a job or being paid full time in a job was almost impossible. So you couldn't earn enough money playing cricket full time. And I wasn't ready to finish. I, you know, I felt like I was in the prime of my uh, my career. But up until that era, you know, guys were giving it away in their late twenties because they had young families and they had to go and get a job uh, or put more effort into their, their job if they were lucky enough to have a job that gave them time off to go and play. Bearing in mind that, you know, my first two tours of England were six and a half months. So you were away a long time. And even when you were playing at home, you know, I would leave Brisbane as a resident of Queensland. I would leave Brisbane at the end of November once the first test match was finished and not get back till February because, you know, the rest of the international summer was everywhere else except Brisbane. So even when you were at home, you were away a lot. Um, by the time I, when I came to Queensland um, with partners, I had businesses. Um, so I, I had partners who were being very generous, letting me go away and, and picking up the slack. I had a wife who was at home uh, in Brisbane without any family support with, um, you know, three young kids under six. Um, I couldn't justify playing any longer unless things improved and, you know, Kerry Packer came along at the, at the right time. But it was still a big decision to make because we were all, you know, pretty uh, you know, conservative and traditional cricket lovers. This was a bit of an assault on, uh, on the game in the sense that um, it was wrenching the game away from, from the board of control. But it... It came at the right time. You know, colour television had not long been in. Um, you know, I don't think it would have worked on black and white television. I don't think Kerry Packer would have been interested on black and white television, but he had a brand new baby of colour television. And he knew that live sport on TV was the way to go. And, you know, he had deep pockets and uh, was a lover of the game. And, you know, we were playing a brand of cricket that was exciting. So uh, it all came together pretty nicely. The infamous underarm incident—it's obviously something you would have been asked about many times for it, for, since it happened. But can you take us through it all? No, <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've been through this about ten thousand times. I can. Yeah. Um, I'll try and keep it a short story because it really—it it had very little to do with what was going on on the day. It was a build-up from 
a lot of this off the field stuff that had been going on before World Series cricket. Then we went through the revolution of World Series cricket to, you know, stand up to the the cricket board and say, listen, you know, we, you know, we're partners in this game with you guys. You know, we uh, we deserve a bit more respect. Um, they weren't giving us a lot of respect, let alone any money. World Series cricket certainly improved the money, but it finished probably a year too early. Um, you know, I think the game was. Um, you know, on its knees, but the board hadn't sort of been brought to its knee. You know, the, the traditional game uh, was on its knees, but it, the board hadn't really been brought to its knees. When we came back after World Series cricket, all of the problems that we had before World Series cricket, except the pay, were still there and was exacerbated by the fact that we now had a lot more cricket to play because one day cricket became a big part of the summer. We had two touring teams instead of one. So it meant that, um, well, in the, the first year or two after World Series cricket, we were actually playing alternate test matches. I can remember one year we played um, the West Indies in the first test match and then we played England in the second test. And Bruce Laird had had his hand broken by the West Indies and couldn't play against England. So England got the benefit of what the West Indies had done in that sense. And in amongst it all, we played one-day cricket. So we were playing a few test matches, then we'd play a snatch of one-day games and then back to test cricket. It was all over the place. And at the same time, the Melbourne cricket ground was a mess. The, uh, the centre wicket at the Melbourne cricket ground was just a disgrace. The quality of the, the pitches that were being um, offered up there at the MCG weren't as good as Clem Jones' pitch at the Gabba. So... Um, that, and that's saying something because uh, you would have had to try hard to produce something worse than Clem was producing, but they were doing it on a regular basis at the MCG and we were playing twice as many games at the MCG as anybody else was. And pretty much for about 18 months, I had been... Uh, you know, the, the other aspect of it is, you know, we didn't have media managers. We didn't have... You know, we had a team manager who was more about logistics you know, anything to do with the team, the media came to the captain, the administration came to the captain. So the workload as captain after World Series cricket was, I don't know, five times, ten times greater than it was before World Series cricket. And, you know, I, I didn't realise just how much of an impact uh, this was having, uh, having on me. Um, we had a really tight uh, series um, with India and New Zealand that, uh, that summer. And we were coming down to the finals of, uh, of the one-day competition after which we had a, the final test match against India at the MCG. And, you know, the only place that India could be competitive with us in Australia at that stage was in, at the MCG because it was so low and slow and uh, more like an Indian wicket than an Australian wicket. Senior players had had a really long, you know, all of us had a long, long summer. Um, we had a few little injury niggles for, with key players. So there was a whole lot of stuff that was going on in the, in the background. And then we had this game that was going down to the wire. Um, and when it uh, came to the, the, the last over, um, Trevor, my younger brother, was bowling. And we, um, we needed, I don't know, two or three wickets. He took a couple of wickets and then Brian McKechnie came to the crease. I'd never seen Brian bat before because he'd come over as an injury replacement. But I imagine 
batting number 11 for New Zealand probably wasn't that good. Uh, but um, this was more about a statement from my point of view. I knew New Zealand couldn't win. In fact, even if they hit a six, they couldn't win the game. They could only tie the game. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't going to have a huge impact on, on the outcomes of that game or the, the, the final series because New Zealand had already qualified for the, um, the final series. Well, that was the final series. So um, I can remember I was fielding it um, deep mid-on because that was sort of a, a danger zone. And, you know, I was one of the better outfielders in the, in the team. So I put myself where I felt that I was going to be most useful. And I remember looking up as Brian McKechnie walked in uh, to bat. And I thought, you know what? I've just about had a gut full of this. So I walked up to Trevor and I said, mate, how are you bowling your underarms? And his eyes rolled back in his head. And he said, I don't know. And I said, mate, you're just about to find out because that's what you'll be doing. And didn't leave any room for discussion. Um, walked over to the, um, the umpire at the bowler's end and um, told him that Trevor would be delivering the last ball underarm and he's, his eyes rolled back in his head. He walked over to the square leg umpire and uh, informed him that uh, Trevor would be bowling the last ball underarm and I'm reliably told that Donny Weezer's eyes rolled back in his head as well. So nobody was all that excited about it. Um, and to be quite honest, I couldn't have cared less at that point. Once I'd instructed Trevor, I walked back to, to deep mid on and I was just waiting for the game to finish so I could get off the ground. Trevor bowled an absolute jaffer. It's not that easy to bowl underarm if you haven't practiced it. Um, and he could have made me look a real goose if he'd bowled a wide um, because then I would have been in serious trouble because they would have been able to win the game then. And um, I, I'm sure I would have let him bowl one properly after that. But he bowled a jaffer. Brian McKechnie blocked it, threw his bat away, and we all headed to the dressing room. I started to jog off from, from mid on. I was on the dressing room side of the ground and I had about 100 metres to the players race and I started to jog towards the, the race. In those days, at the end of the game, kids would jump the fence and run out on the ground and everyone did that. They all started to run out on the ground, which was not unusual. I remember this young girl, probably 10 or 11, sort of come out, I saw her jump over the fence and run out and I thought she was going with everyone else out into the middle of the ground, which is what they did. And so I slowed down to let her go in front of me. And as she went across, she turned around. I had long sleeve shirt on and she just tugged on my sleeve. And uh, I looked down and she said, you cheated. And I thought, um, that, you know, I, I realised then that um, maybe I'd underestimated the response. So I got to the dressing room and uh, the, uh, the Australian players were very quiet. No one said a word. So... Uh, I went and had a shower so they could talk amongst themselves. And I realised while I was under the shower, we were meant to be flying to Sydney the next day because we had a, that was on the Sunday. We had a game on Tuesday in Sydney. Um, I realised that Melbourne probably wasn't the place for me to wake up on Monday morning. So I went to our team manager and said, John, uh, the, the Sydney-based boy, Sydney boys were going to be flying back to Sydney that night, uh, including my younger brother. So I said, John, if there's any chance, I'd like to get on that flight so I can be up in Sydney tomorrow and not have to run the uh, gauntlet at the Melbourne airport. So uh, they got me out of town and all hell broke loose. Um, but I, uh, I tucked myself away in my room at the uh, hotel in, in Sydney and uh, 
kept the head down. The phone was ringing. Messages were being shoved under the door. Um, I had to answer uh, one of the calls because it was from the cricket board. So we uh, had to organise an, an apology, which I was, was happy to do. But it certainly uh, unleashed some um, almighty uh, comment from uh, the media and everyone else. But funnily enough, uh, the New Zealand players were terrific. Jeff Howarth, who was the captain, was um, incredibly, uh, incredibly good. And yeah, just talking to the New Zealand player, funnily enough, um, this past uh, summer we had a reunion in, in Melbourne with the, um, the New Zealand boys from that, uh, that particular series. And it wasn't the first time it had been said, but um, Jeff Howarth, said to a, uh, an audience there at, at that particular day that it was the best thing that ever happened to New Zealand cricket. He said, you yeah, know, we'd, we'd struggled to get crowds to support us because rugby's the big game in, in New Zealand and cricket's a secondary sport. He said, we couldn't get a crowd to, uh, to support us, but Greg sorted that out in one fell swoop. And we, we toured New Zealand the next year and we had sellout crowds everywhere we went. Um, following your playing career, you had two stints as an Australian selector. How do you f reflect on these years? Oh, the guy enjoyed the, the time as a selector. Um, you know, I've uh, been lucky to have been involved you know, for a long time. You know, I, I, I was a selector when I first finished playing you know, for a few years and I was a board member for a part of that time. Then I had about... Um, 10 years away from cricket where you're know, just involved in my businesses and uh, involved with the family and so on. Um, and came back as, as a, as a coach, um, later, you know, the, I enjoyed the coaching, um, but I also enjoyed the selecting, you know, putting teams together, being able to sort of, you know, try and blend the skills of, of different groups, you know, what you want with a team is for the, the sum of the parts to be, uh, you know, greater than the individual and um, to be able to uh, complement each other. I really enjoyed that, that challenge. Um, love putting teams together and seeing players um, that you had been involved with their selection do well, uh, teams that you were involved in do well. You know, we had success, we had failure, we had... Uh, you know, some ups and, and downs through all of that time. But I, I enjoyed every bit of it, to be honest. And just finally, Greg, you've been involved with cricket for the vast majority of your life. What stands out as your favourite moment across your illustrious career? Oh, Riley, that's a, that's a tough one. I, I, you know, it's hard to pick any one moment. You know, my first tour of England, or you know, first test match, I suppose you, you'd always look at, look at that. You know, first tour of England was, you know, was a standout. I still look back on that with uh, very fond memories. First tour of the West Indies in 73, uh, fabulous um, cricket tour, fabulous place to play cricket, you know, wonderful environment in which to play cricket. You were never far away from a good beach. And, you know, apart from cricket, I do enjoy, you know, time at the, at the beach. Um, Getting to Captain Australia was a was a great honour, and to have all those other opportunities around cricket. But I just think having the opportunity to you know to, to be involved in something that that you're passionate about and that that you that you really love and enjoy the challenges that were associated with it. You know, I, 
when I look back on it, some of the some of the best lessons I got were from the worst days. You know, when you when you had failures, and, and cricket's a game of failure, batting particularly. You know, so Donald Bradman batted 82 times in Test cricket and only got 2,900. So he failed 53 times out of 80, 82, and he's twice as good as the next best. So uh, you can imagine how the rest of us got on. You know, if you can't handle failure and, and deal with it and learn from it and, and come back with confidence to perform again, uh, you don't survive. And so I think that um, when I look back on it, it was the, the times we had together as mates that was, uh, is what I look back on with, with fondness. Um, you know, striving to, um, you know, to, to win, not always winning. Again, you know, some of the best times were when we lost. Um, but it was that shared vision, that shared challenge of uh, pitting yourself against the best the opposition could throw at you. And, you know, some of the best life lessons I learned have come from, from my time in, in cricket. So to be blessed to have been able to live the bulk of my life heavily involved in the game that I love is uh, what I look back on with fondness. Absolutely. Well, Greg, that's all we've got for you. You've been brilliant, brilliant with your time. Uh, we can't thank you enough and thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It's a pleasure, uh, Riley and Ben. Thanks very much. And good luck to you guys. Um, you know, I, I believe you're a bit keen to get involved in the media. So, uh, this is all, all good experience and well done. Some great questions. You obviously prepared yourselves pretty well. Did you, you do a, you've done a few of these, obviously. Yeah, this is the 43rd episode. Well done. Yeah, good on you. I bet Thank you're you. Getting a, lot of, getting a lot, of, uh, lot of fun out of it and a, and a lot of good experience. So well done and uh, good luck for the future. Thank, Thank you. you. Appreciate it. Thanks, Riley. See you, Ben. Wraps us up for another episode of the podcast. It was obviously great to get an insight into Greg's illustrious career. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for some more episodes in the near future.